tonight is July 15th, 2015. The message is called Advantaged by Adversity. Amen. If you're going to preach on adversity, you're going to find a little adversity. I want to start with a scriptural quote. Those of you that are King James fans will love this. Luke 4, 7. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. This is what everybody is preaching these days. You worship to get. You worship so that you personally can be enriched. Of course, while that is scripture, it is Satan who said it. And it is a satanic doctrine that we serve God to get. That God is the God of greed and gain and victory. This is satanic. We serve the living God because He is holy, because He is righteous, because He is altogether lovely and pure. This is why we serve Him. In the house of God, we will not appeal to greed and gain. Instead, we will extol the virtues of sacrifice, of losing your life, of giving your all for Christ. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Let's move to the next. This is a quote from the third president of the United States. He said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that His justice cannot sleep forever. If he said that in the third presidency, if this is Thomas Jefferson, how do you think that would ring true today? In his day, the Supreme Court had not authorized the killing of babies. Planned Parenthood was not selling their parts. The Supreme Court had not ruled as a majority to authorize immoral behavior and protect it as a sovereign right of every United States citizen. In his day, we had not eroded our national borders so that they mean nothing. In his day, he was concerned about the evils that he saw and the evil has only grown. We live in a time where our pulpits are so weak that they preach greed and gain. We live in a time where what we expect from our politicians is godlessness. I would like to appeal to you for a few minutes about what the scripture says regarding affluence and adversity. In Deuteronomy 8, 17, you have this warning. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget, say ever forget. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be, what's that last word? Is this word true? Then you must know the price for the sin of our nation and of every individual sinner is death. Only Christ, only the crucifixion of Christ, as you take up your cross and follow Him, saves you or causes death to pass you over. Nothing short of national revival will stop the judgment that is coming upon this land. Nothing will. But you as an individual, 
can make it your ambition to save as many as will hear the word of the Lord. You're going to hear in the next election cycle about American exceptionalism. You know what we're exceptional at? Sinning. We export it all over the world. We, we extol the virtues of sin. What we need to be exceptional at is repenting. Oh, church, a good man repents often. A perfect man repents every day, all day. Listen to the way that Isaiah spoke of adversity. This is Isaiah 30 in verse 19. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. When is he gracious? Somebody say, help me, Lord. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Oh, man, if daddy hears his children, he will come and help you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way and walk in it. Very great dependence comes out of very great adversity. If you were blind right now for the very first time in your life before you had developed any coping skills, just stricken with blindness, how much help would you need to get home? But because you think that you can see, we get home just fine. The more dependent a man is on the Lord, the better off his life is in the Lord. We are going to return to a day where adversity is our teacher will teach us to depend upon the presence and the power of the Lord because the programs will not satisfy. The robes and the rituals will not do it. God's house will again be filled with fresh bread from heaven. When you have heard from the living God, you can endure anything. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, you're an anvil that wears out hammers. Nothing will overcome the overcoming nature of Christ inside of you. But when you are playing games in the house of God, when you're in the house of God for expediency, for gain, for wealth, for networking, when you're in the house of God because it is socially appropriate to be there, a man like that ought not think that he will prosper in the kingdom. In fact, he may be standing next to the kingdom, but he is outside of it. Do you want to make your calling an election? Sure. Adversity will reveal the true believers among us. Proverbs 17, 17 is often quoted, but little thought on. A friend loves at all times. By the way, are you a friend of Jesus? Do you love him at all times? Or do you only love him when the social winds Make it appropriate to do so. Do you love Him just as much in front of lost people as you do saved people? Do you worship just as well outside these walls as you do in it? A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for... You want to know who your brothers are? Get in a foxhole. You want to know who your brothers are? Declare it's moving day. You want to know who your brothers are? Wait till you are broke till you have nothing to offer and see who it is that pulls close to you. 
See, the gospel of greed says I will serve God if he does something for me. But the gospel of sacrifice says he's already done for me everything that I ever would have asked for or imagined. My life will be filled with what I can do for him. The problem with the gospel of greed, the gospel of affluence and comfort, is that it is not a brother in adversity. It hates adversity. It runs from adversity and it turns on you if you're in adversity considers you cursed and stricken by God because their God only blesses them. As far as I can tell, the only spiritual power in all of the Bible that only promises a blessing is Satan. God Almighty actually stands before his people and promises them life and death, depending on how they respond to his word. If you are being sold a bill of goods... If you are being told that you're a champion every day, all day, no matter how you live or what you do, then you need to consider it as a satanic gospel. For that gospel is not found written in the Word. True adversity does more than just reveal who the believers are. It actually makes better believers out of us. James 1 is something I would like you to go to. Say there when you are there. First chapter of James, if you don't have a Bible, we will get you one. If you stare at this screen and do not turn in a Bible, we're a small enough congregation. I will come sit next to you and it will get very awkward. If you have a phone in your hand, you better be texting God. James 1, pick up with me in verse 2. Come on, are you going to help a brother out tonight? If you say, help me, Lord... He will answer you. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. What kind of joy? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When you are thinking on the truth of God's word, the truth is that trials... Test your faith. If you are not in positions that are causing you to agonize over your faith, fighting the good fight of faith, hurting for holding to the truth, then you're not really being tested yet. Do you think it was such an easy thing to go 40 days without food and be offered bread? Do you think it was such an easy thing to be offered the kingdoms of the world when they belonged to him? Do you think it was such an easy thing to watch his friends turn their backs on him. Do you think it's an easy thing that Fabian Gretsch is in Iraq right now, risking his life for the gospel? The sacrifices of the gospel do bring a testing of your faith. Men and women that have never had their faith tested have never gotten on the battlefield. They have never put anything at risk, and thus they show no faith. But when you get to the place where God save you or you perish, When you get to the place where all you have is the knowledge of his character and despite all evidence all around you, you trust his character, this develops something in you. It develops perseverance. Going through trials gives you an opportunity to see where you are weak in your trust, where you are strong in your trust. We must go through adversity to do that. As we persevere in that adversity... Maturity comes. 
the more that you have been tested, the more that you have persevered in that testing, the more mature you become. One reason that we have many people in the body of Christ with many years of pedigree and yet very little maturity is they do the things they like and they refuse the things they dislike and they do it consistently. What develops maturity is when we're obedient on the days we don't feel like it. When we worship on the days that our flesh says no. When we read and we study and we get into the presence of God when it is not popular even with us to do so. This develops something in us. It causes us to become mature. If you continue to mature, the Bible says that you come to a place where you are complete, not lacking anything. Paul said he had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That sounds like a man who is complete, who is no longer lacking anything. Whether he was warm or cold, well-fed or hungry, he felt like he had all he needed. If you'd like to know how complete you are, how often do you espouse yourself as in great need of a great many things? An immature person is always looking for God to do something more for them. A mature person is so excited about what he's already done, they can't wait to do more for him. Do you serve God like a magic genie? Or do you serve him like the true sovereign of the universe? See, it is a satanic thing to rub his belly and say, now give me my wishes. This is the deal that the devil offered. This is not what God has offered as the plan of salvation. He said, if any man would follow me, he must, take up his, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We are following in the footsteps of one who is obedient unto death. How many of you will be obedient unto death? How many of you are willing to prove that now? See, we can no longer wait for a day and say, on that great day, I know I will rise to the challenge. I say to you now, it's time to get up and go up. I say to you right now, it is time to rally our strength. Right now, you must decide where you will stand because the day may approach you faster than you thought that it would. And if you are worn out now, While you are running with men, what will it be like when you run with the horses? Can you feel things speeding up around us? Have you ever thought that things would progress quite this fast? I tell you, the next two years are going to be an amazing time. And I only picked two because the last two have been extraordinary. This is the time to find your footing. This is the time to develop your character so that when you are faced with unthinkable choices, they are made before you are faced with them. 1 Peter 2.2 compels us, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Look at your neighbor and say, grow up! Sometimes we're offended with statements like that. Consider that the man who said it never stopped growing. He preached a gospel of ever-increasing faith. He preached attributes of Christ that men possessed, but he said you must possess 
in increasing measure. Consider that it was never an insult to say grow up. The only insult was to consider yourself mature when in fact you are a spiritual ninny baby. Is this what we want? A bottle-fed Christianity? Or will we move to the food of angels? The men in the Bible that were fed angels' food had gone without any natural substance for long periods of time. They had climbed mountains. They had separated themselves from the masses and they were fed the bread of angels. The nation who was fed manna was in a desert when they did it. No water, no comfort, only the Lord behind, be, ahead of them and Egypt behind them. Where are you today? Do you have all you need without the Lord's help? Do you have all you could want right now? Because there is a day coming when adversity will again be our teacher. And I welcome the day because this is where real Christians are made. Adversity compels a Savior. It compels the Savior towards you, and it compels you towards the Savior. A Jewish rabbi that many call Rambam, some academics call him Nachmanides, a 13th century physician and a biblical commentator, a man that is, as far as we know, never knew who Yeshua was in the way that a born-again believer does, still surveying the Word, particularly the book of Ruth, said this, Precisely at the time where one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and to save us. This is an important lesson for future generations. Church, when you're in very great trouble, is when there is a very great deliverer. You want to know the degree to which you love Jesus. How much has He forgiven you? He who sinned much, loves much. Did He forgive you a little bit or did He forgive you a whole lot? Do you prove that by your love for Him? See, one of the problems with America is we have a very small Savior. We have a Savior after we've met our own financial needs. We have a Savior after we've met our own physical needs, after the government has met our medical needs. We have a Savior for that very small percentage of our life that we reserve to allow Him in. But the more you need a Savior, the more of a Savior He is to you. This is why when we go to the cardboard shanties in Mexico, there is a very great Savior there. This is why when we go to the barefooted huts in India, there is a very great Savior there. This is why on the east coast of Africa, there is a very great Savior there because the people are in a very great and desperate battle. Why, pastor, do we see miracles everywhere except here? Because you've insulated yourself from the need for miracles. You have factored God out of your lives. Instead, we've replaced him with MasterCard, Visa, insurance, and health insurance. I'm very proud to say Jesus Christ has been my health insurance for my entire adult life. I've been told that it was unwise since the day that I got married, and I'm just as unwise today as I was then. But I stand before you never having had to have Blue Cross, Blue Shield, 
pay a bill for me. The bloody cross of Jesus Christ has been my healer. Psalm 116.6 says, The Lord protects the simple-hearted. Maybe that's what we need more of. Simple-hearted. Not on this hand, this, and on that hand, that. Maybe we need undivided, simple-hearted people who simply are stubborn enough to believe that God's way is right. When I was in great need, somebody say great need. When I was in great need, he saved whom? Me. When will you see the mighty deliverance of your God? When you need a mighty deliverance. Adversity is an advantage in every way. Is it the rich who are rich in faith? Oh, what's wrong in the house? Is it the rich who are rich in faith? Steve, I'll sit and talk with you tonight, okay? Is it the rich who are rich in faith? If it's not the rich who are rich in faith, Who is it, Patricia? Who's rich in faith? Who is rich in faith? We are. The poor. The poor. Do you mean to tell me that those that don't have have to trust God more? Then why on earth would you spend your entire life accumulating all you can get? Why would you do it? You know, my son is getting married. It seems like such a a prudent thing. His boss has sat down with him and explained to him the virtues of a 401k. And I'm certainly excited about financial discipline and stewardship. They think it unthinkable that he is not concerned with sucking away as much as he can possibly suck away. They don't understand it. You want to know, you can live by accumulating things. But if you really want to live, you learn to give away things. Little Anne Frank, little Dutch girl, said, if I could have memories or dresses, I would take the memories. Friends, how long has your new car stayed new? How long has that big screen TV stayed a glowing eye? Well, maybe that one has. It's an amazing thing. It's worth six or seven hundred dollars a month until you've been in it six months. And then you only do it because you have to and you wonder if you should have kept the car you had. Will we have buyer's regret when this life is over? Will you have invested in everything except the right things? The Lord protects the simple-hearted. Who does He protect? When I was in what kind of need? What kind of need? When's the last time you were in great need? He saved me. Do you want to see a great Savior? You're going to have to risk more. You're going to have to move headlong into adversity as a normal part of life. The only whining there should be in the house of God is at the communion table. You know why? When you feel yourself without, this is the opportunity for Him to show up and meet your need. Oh, that we could turn our whining into praying. Has He healed in this church? Has he provided spouses in this church? 
Come on, Curtis. Has he provided spouses? He might have to fly them in for another country for some of you. He has been living and active among us, and we are learning to trust him. But I am telling you, we are going to a whole new level. The book of Judges contains a startling statement. In the 21st chapter, in the 25th verse, the very last verse in the book of Judges, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. You know, it occurred to me that in about the year 400, the Latin Vulgate was created by Jerome. And we had the translation of the day as Latin, a language that Jesus never spoke, certainly not a holy language to anybody except a confused bunch on an Italian peninsula. They reduced the 400 translations that existed in the day to one holy translation. And from 400 to about 1400, it was primarily the only translation. And then thank God for a Czechoslovakian John Huss. Thank God for men who risked their lives to bring us new translations of the word. By the time we reached 1611, from the Latin Vulgate emerged a Bible that people of the day could read as their vernacular. The King James Version of the Bible. Most don't realize it, but from 1611 to 1792, it underwent at least six major revisions. Your new King James really is a much newer King James. Having said that, the English-speaking people of the world were so excited to have a translation in their language that they could read, that during the days of the Renaissance, the average guy on the street could quote far more Scripture than any who had been in the priesthood before them because they loved the Word of God. As time went forward, from 1611, with small revisions to the King James Bible, all the way up to about the year 1800, we really had almost no other translations in the English language. English was changing. It was growing. There were words being added and words that were no longer in use. And in the mid-50s in this country, there began to be a serious movement for an updated version. By the time you reached the 60s, you got something like the New American Standard. By the time you got into the mid-70s, we had... Uh, what is now known as the 1984 NIV, we began uh, having the Living Bible and the Amplified Bible. And in the late 80s, we really saw five or six very good translations. They were resisted, of course. Have you noticed that in the last five or six years, a translation comes out every day like popping grapes? We've moved from wanting a Bible that we could understand to wanting a designer Bible that is uniquely tailored to mothers, uniquely ta tailored to firefighters, uniquely tailored to aerobics instructors. Soon there'll be comic, uh, comic versions of the Bible. There are already homosexual versions of the Bible. It says something about our culture that for hundreds of years, if we had one we could simply read, we thought that was wonderful. And then if we had one we could read and understand, we thought that was wonderful. But now, now, 
We want one that says what we want it to say. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, I'm backing further and further away from the 2011 NIV all of the time. Gender neutral is something that just does not agree with God. If you have one, I am certainly not upset with you. I read from seven or eight translations every time that I read anything. And I love that. And before you begin to get excited because I have said something negative about a version that you don't like, let me assure you there are extraordinary problems with each one of them, which is why you're supposed to engage the text. In the book of Judges, they were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And so we see wickedness that had never occurred before or since in Israel. People cutting up their concubines. Brothers going to war against brothers to the place where they almost exterminated them. This cycle exists throughout the book of Judges. There's peace in the land because Israel is serving the Lord. Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. God punishes Israel and Israel is enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge and then Israel is delivered. We see it repeated from Othniel all the way through the last judge in the book of Judges. Do you really think that our nation would be any different? Or do you think we can thumb our nose in the very face of God, mock His righteousness, and we will not go into captivity? You overestimate the strength of America's military. And I hear that right now Ash Carter is considering allowing a transgendered army. That'll go over well on the battlefield. The bullets won't even know which way they're going. God takes people right out of a furnace. That's what He does. God allows you to get in a furnace because that's where you're shaped. Heat helps to shape things. Deuteronomy 4.20 says, But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of His inheritance as you now are. He refers to Egypt repeatedly in the Scripture as a furnace because it was there that the impurities in the people were dealt with. It was there that idolatries in the people were dealt with. It was there that they were in a very great need and they saw the greatest deliverance in Israel's history up until Jesus. Am I wrong or were the ten plagues a minor event? Am I wrong or was the death angel a minor event? I mean, think on this, saints. They had never been in more trouble. 400 years in slavery. God looked upon the oppression of His people and was concerned about them. So He came down to raise them up, He said. He reaches into a furnace and He pulls out of it princely material. That's what He does. But we want to avoid everything that God would use to shape us. You know, every Christian who tries to have a baby, every Christian who tries to sell a house, every Christian that tries to build a house, every Christian, that, I mean, there's, there's very few ways to really shape us and mold us. In America, the ways to do it are to plan big family events. That'll get your Christianity right fast. The ways to do it are to set out with a building contractor to build something. 
the ways to do it are have to attend a funeral. There are very few ways to get our attention now. But if you mess with our house and our job, that gets our attention. Oh, Christians, the days are coming when they will confiscate your property. It is going to happen. This is not conspiracy theory. It was true in the first century, and it will be true in the last century. I promise that. And do you know how in the book of Hebrews it mentions it? They met that obstacle with joy. You know, I'm sure legal battles will ensue when they come for the church's tax exemption status, but it will be met with a certain smile on my face. I I never wanted to have gloves on regarding the wickedness of our government. Have you ever considered that the tax exemption was given to churches to quiet churches about political speech? It's never worked with me. And if you give money in this church so that you get a tax deduction, well, I don't think anybody in here does. If you do, you won't be with us Sunday, you know? Something happened to me this last week. You know that one of the ways that God gets a man's attention is he allows him to buy a Ford. And if you, if you do that, then you're going to learn about the acronym Fix or Repair Daily. And we have the finest mechanics in this church that, that any church could hope for. I worry for them many times that they're abused and overrun with our problems. But as far as I can tell, it's not possible to overwork them, overload them, or give them enough of our problems to steal their joy. But every once in a while, I really just like to get my own hands dirty. So we had a front-end vibration in the Ford. And in a one-ton, when you have a front-end vibration, it's not a small thing. Um, the tires are bouncing. I couldn't figure out what it was. And as I took the wheels apart, there's a little diagram here. This is, if you haven't seen this, this is how most brakes are made on most vehicles now. There's a piston that pushes against a caliper and it squeezes a disc that most people would call a rotor. And that brings that giant hunk of steel to a stop. Well, it turns out that a rock had gotten between the piston and the rotor and put really, really deep grooves in it. Further, it seems that some contaminant had gotten inside the caliper. The caliper moves back and forth on what's called glides. It needs to be able to squeeze and to be able to relax every time you're riding too close behind someone and have to hit your brakes. And what happens occasionally is you go somewhere where it's muddy or you get road grime, you get some kind of contaminant in the glide. And when that happens, it creates more friction than should be there. An internal friction that begins to heat things up to the place where the glide no longer moves. And when the glide no longer moves, guess what happens to the truck? It no longer has brakes. Or it has brakes all of the time. <laughs> no longer functions like it should. As I was taking these apart, I couldn't get the glide out. And as what we do when we can't get the glide out is we take a torch to it. Because it turns out that if you have a little bit of internal contamination that has maybe caused you to be stuck in apathy, 
and you can't move. You have no confidence. You can no longer do the things God has called you to do because of things that are unseen that you're wrestling with in your life. One of the ways that God deals with that is He takes a torch to you. Because if you heat up the external part of the break, something begins to happen. There's an expansion that exposes that internal contaminant. Is God turning up the heat on you? He's going to. You want to know why we're getting our relationships right? Why we're writing letters to people? Why we're calling? Why we're doing those things? Because we can feel the need to get rid of contamination because testing is coming. It turns out that if you heat it up enough, the glides will come right out and you can relubricate them. Do you need to be refilled with the Spirit? Do you need to clean something out of your heart, something out of your life, so that God can re-wet your spirit and you can function as you were supposed to in the house of God? Oh, church... We can sit back and wait for everybody else to do it, but sometimes there are lessons that you were meant to learn as you fight with adversity in your own life. I love that I have brothers I could call them. They would fix anything for me. But how could I learn about my own life then? You want to know how you're doing with the Lord? Embark on a frustrating project. You might find you're not as close to Him as you think. Let him turn up the heat on you a little bit until it's exposed and you know what you need to lubricate with the Holy Ghost. Have you already exonerated yourself? Because the thing that I love about the Lord is he doesn't just expose the contaminant. He'll do whatever it takes to remove it. It might take a sledgehammer. In this case, it did. Take a sledgehammer to it and then once you've got it cleaned up and you relubricate it, do you know what you do? You reassemble it and you put it right back where it was always supposed to function. In this day and time, it's so easy just to throw it away and get another one. And maybe that's what churches are doing with people. But we don't throw people away in here. We give you an opportunity to get right. We embrace adversity so that when we see contaminants in our lives, we can ask God Almighty to remove them so that we would be pleasing to Him. Anybody want to get right in the house of God tonight? I want to talk to you about three men as we move forward. The first one is going to be David. David is one of those guys in the Bible that is just extraordinary. And I can't share all of these verses with you, but what I'm going to do is post these notes online for you and walk you through them. When David was anointed as a shepherd, he was the youngest or the eighth of seven brothers. At that phase in his life, he was opposed by the natural elements. He was opposed by lions and bears. We don't know much else about it. We know that lions and bears tried to steal a sheep and we know that he slept out in the pasture. As he progressed in his calling, and you see the scriptures under each one of these, he was said to be a musician and a worshiper. David played the lyre, uh, or you could call it the harp, in the service of the king. Now, during that time period, he was also still a shepherd. So he was still out in the fields with the lions and the bears. But now he's learning to oppose spiritual forces. Do you remember Saul had an injurious or an evil spirit? And they would call David and David would play the harp and it would bring relief to Saul. Do you remember that? 
He turns into something of a boy prodigy. As a youth, he went up against the best in the ranks of the Philistines. You can read about that in the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel. Now, at this time, all that we've seen happen is he's still fighting with the natural elements. He still has to deal with lions and bears. He's learned to add to that spiritual forces. And now, opposed by enemies of God like Goliath, as well as his jealous brother, like Eliab. Adversity is mounting in his life. His life is not getting easier. It's getting more difficult. He moves on to a courtier or a warrior. This is David's accomplishments have called him to be enlisted by the king as a full-time member of the army in the court of the king. He has all of the hazards of a shepherd. He has all the spiritual forces, uh, hazards. Now he's dealing still with the national enemies, still with jealous kinsmen, but his godly advancement has caused even the king of Israel to begin to be jealous of him. They were upset because David was advancing through all of his adversity. David moves to the place where he becomes king over Judah. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 2. He's shown faith in adversity. He's shown respect for authority. And now the foot is headed to the head of the table, so to speak. He's still opposed by the natural elements. He's still opposed by the spiritual forces. He's still opposed by national enemies, jealous kinsmen, by Saul's regime and army loyalist. Plus, now, Judah and Israel are in the beginnings of a civil war, and he's got that to deal with. He ends up as united king over all of Israel. He's got the entire kingdom under his belt. During that time, he had been opposed by all of the previous forces. Plus, now he has the weight of a divided house that is being united on his shoulders. Nothing's gotten easier in his life. Would you say that he's blessed by God or cursed by God? He's blessed by God. Nothing has happened in his life except more responsibility, more adversity, more difficulty. And yet he's blessed through every bit of it. There's a turning point in David's life. David is so victorious that he uproots the Jebusites and puts every enemy of Israel to the sword. In 2 Samuel 5, 2 Samuel 6, 2 Samuel 7, and 2 Samuel 8, you see a progression of events. You see the ark of God brought into the city of David. You see the Davidic covenant given to David. And in 2 Samuel 8, he lays down the enemies of God and every third length of the cord, he puts them to death at will. Would you say that's total dominance? David, who has always faced increasing opposition, begins to eliminate that opposition. In his prosperity, he's blessed by God. Now, he's not in the natural elements, he's in a palace. Now, he has no more national enemies to contend with, he's beaten all who are close by. He's got no more jealous kinsmen to deal with, he's the king of Israel. He's got no more Saul, Saul is dead. He's got no more civil war or major dissent. All is going well. He's blessed by God on every side. Wouldn't you like the story to end there? Go to 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, 
At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. Say that with me. David sent Joab. And every other time in his life, David was on the battlefield. But now he's prosperous enough to be free from adversity. Now he's prosperous enough that he no longer has to go to battle to lead the men. He can send his second best and still do okay. He's affluent enough to have time to be on a rooftop checking out a woman bathing. What would have happened if there was so much adversity in his life he couldn't have stayed home? Sin is conceived. After it's conceived, it's sought after. It begins to reap destruction. What turned out as the sin of lust ended in the sin of murder. Why did it happen? Because his life was more and more free from adversity. Is that a difficult connection for you to make? That the more God blesses a man, the more that you may have a temporary success, you may not be winning the long-term war. I think a very excellent message was preached by Pastor Sutherland on that subject. It turns out that the more David depended on the Lord because he had to, the more godly he was. The more his Savior was close to him, the more he was close to his Savior. And as you eliminated the things that forced his dependence on God, he had time and opportunity and desire to pursue things that were not God. God gave a prescription to him. The prescription is found in 2 Samuel 12. Most people would think this is a curse. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 10. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? None of us would like to be at war with our relatives. But I got to tell you, when you're under attack, even from members of your own family, how much closer to the Lord do you need to be? Did Jesus not tell us that members of our own household would turn on us? That he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword? It would divide father from son and mother from daughter? Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. This looks like God is mad at him, doesn't it? Of course, when God was good to him, what did it produce in him? The opportunity to sin. Perhaps what God is doing is adding adversity back into his life to protect him, to advance him, because when he's facing giant Philistines, he does pretty good. When he's facing lions and bears, he does pretty good. When he has a king chasing him across the world, trying to kill him, he does pretty good. The one time in his life he was not doing well was when he had no opposition facing him down. I'm sure that doesn't relate to any of us, though. We're sure that if we hit the lotto, our lives would go very well. Even though you can look at everybody that's ever hit the lotto and find out it was not a blessing to them. It turns out that there is life in the fight. It turns out that facing overwhelming odds helps to make the man. 
We look for the right man. We say, oh, if there was a great man among us, great men are made because of great difficulty. You can read about Charles Finney. And if you don't know the historical context, you think of him as a prince of preachers. You think of him as the greatest revivalist in American history. And I love him. I think all of those things. But what you're missing is there was an outbreak of cholera that was killing hundreds of thousands of people. He rose to the occasion because he had to. Because God had him for such a time as this. It turns out that Rambam in the 13th century was right. Great distress brings a great deliverer. How many of you have dreamed of great things for God? Two of you. What, what, what's wrong, church? I don't know how to, how to do any more for you. It's a busy week for us. We stayed home and just talked to our daughter-in-law and son. Well, I need to come sit for you and you preach for me? What do we want to do here? God is adding back to the man's life the things that made him great. We think that adversity is there to torture us. We think that adversity is there because God's mad at us. Adversity is there to form you. Adversity is there to shape you. It's to cause you to come out of the furnace and become His inheritance. And you cannot get to be His inheritance without going through the furnace. To quote Winston Churchill, if you are going through hell... Keep going. The greatest moments in history have come when men say things like David does in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Didn't say he had a weakness. He didn't say maybe kind of, sort of. You know, it was really Bathsheba's fault. Uriah really, he wanted to be on the front lines. I mean, I'm just telling you, I only did what... He wanted me to. He didn't make excuses and equivocate the way modern Christians do. He answers him in a single sentence. I have sinned. There's no words that I hate more than to hear that. And there's no words that will do other than that. Please don't sit with your pastors and give us a 45-minute explanation that could be summed up in a single sentence. I have sinned. God doesn't have time to hear the reasons why you sinned. No one cares. We know the reason that you sinned. You are a sinner. What we really want to know is are you going to come to grips with it, with God's standard, and ask Him to help you make up the difference between the two? Quit trying to understand why people sin. We already know you're depraved. That's why you sin. The question is, why do we not repent? That is a difficult question. If God has granted you the opportunity to repent, don't miss it. Adversity has a way of breaking or making a man. It breaks you when you will not yield to the Lord. It makes you when you yield to the Lord in the middle of your adversity and out of the adversity comes something brand new. Consider what is said of David in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the 13th chapter and 22nd verse, it says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man... What's it say? After my own heart. And why? Why is he after his own heart? He will do everything I want him to do. 
I know that there are those in this congregation that do not like that I shun restriction and that I talk often about holiness defined by what you do. I want you to concentrate on the last part of this sentence while you hold your thoughts about me. He will do everything I want him to do. I'm going to just get right out there with controversial theology for you and say God knew that David would do things that he didn't like. Every man does. What made David special is he would also do everything God told him to do. Let's just get it out of the way. No matter how many restrictions you put in your life, you can hide your ankles and shave your faces and keep your beards shaven or whatever it is that you think makes a man holy. I think those make a man ugly. But in any case, whatever it is that you think, I didn't even say what I think it does to women. What God is looking for is people who will do what He tells them to do. That's what He's looking for. Look at Acts 13, 36. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, not when David had refused to uh, chew bubblegum, or eat vegetables, or whatever other restriction people like. When he had served his purpose in his own generation. Church, I'm obsessed with this concept. Have I done what God has called me to do? In this generation, have I completed my purpose? That is so important. What if your purpose has to do with how you go through adversity? Instead of run from it. Instead of hide from it, instead of whine and complain through it. Have you ever found anything that God hates more than grumbling? Have you ever seen anything in the Word that He hates more than complaining about your circumstances? Have you served your purpose in God's generation? God's purpose in the generation He put you in? David did. You say whatever you want to about him. You can remember him as a murderer. You can remember him as an adulterer, and you'd be right on those accounts. But let you, you better not forget, he did everything God told him to do. And whatever his purpose was, he got it done. Will they be able to say that about your, your life at the end? Or will they only be able to say that you didn't eat meat? Hmm? You know, one thing that adversity does among brothers is it eliminates the superfluous. You know, you care very much about whether somebody reads the ESV or the NIV or the NLT or the NASB. You care very much about whether they have pews or padded chairs, whether their worship is free or restrained, until there are bullets flying at anybody who is holding a Bible in their hand. And then you don't care very much what language their Bible is written in, archaic English or modern English. What you care about is Are they a brother through adversity? Will you be found a brother through adversity? Joseph is a one-slide example. You know why? I just spent 18 months teaching the book of Genesis. But I got to tell you, this is a nugget that if you were not in the Genesis study, you're going to want to write down. Read with me Psalm 105. We're going to read 16 through 19 on the left side of the screen. He called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. He sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. 
They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. God sent Joseph into Egypt ahead of his brothers. His brothers thought they sent him there when they sinned. People can sin against you and God still use that action for his purposes. When he was there, they put his feet in shackles. The words neck put in irons do not appear in the original text. The translators are doing their very best to try to make sense of a very interesting Hebrew phrase. If you were reading the Greek translation of this verse, the Septuagint, that was translated by the finest scholars of the ancient world in Alexander's time, This is what it says. They humbled him with shackles. I'm sorry. They humbled with shackles his feet. Iron went through his soul. Come on, say iron went through his soul. soul. It turns out that when you're in adversity, God has a way of working iron through you. He's got a way of making you as hard as the opposition is hard. He's got a way of stiffening your resolve to make you equal to the Pharaoh and his false magicians. He's got a way of making you up to the task and the greater the opposition. What object was too heavy for Samson to pick up? What giant was too big for David to knock down? God will put as much iron in you as faces you. And one of the reasons that we have a nation full of pathetic victims is they face no adversity and so no iron has been worked into their soul. The church needs an iron supplement, friends. We need the chance to face adversity and find out that we are capable of breaking chains in the Holy Ghost. And the more opposition that you face, the more you will find out about your great deliverer. Can you say amen in the house of God? Do you want iron worked into your soul or would you rather be a crumpet? A jelly donut. A powder puff Christian and a candied apple lollipop. I want to be a Holy Ghost filled, iron infused soldier of the king. How did Joseph get there? He was mistreated by everybody except God. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Joseph was mistreated by everybody in his life except God. And so he trusted in the character of God beyond that of men. He leaned upon God's promises because all men were liars. And in the end, God's word proved true. He says the most excellent thing in the 50th chapter, the close of Genesis. His brothers lied to him in the end and say, Our daddy, before he died, he said, "Uh, You shouldn't hurt us. He said, Am I in the place of God? It was a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer was no. And of course, the answer is also, prophetically speaking, an astounding yes. Genesis begins with the creation of the world and it ends with the revelation of a forgiving Savior. He will work iron into your soul. 
You will find that you can forgive people that you thought were unforgivable. You can offer your cheek to those who have never done anything but tried to put you in a blender. You are capable of so much more than you believe that you are because you're untested. Get into the fray. Step into the ring with the heavyweight. You might just find out that mighty King Jesus' right hand is at work in your life. I have one more man to cover with you. His name is Hezekiah. Where we pick up in this story is about 700 B.C. The capital of a city called, or the capital of Assyria is a city called Nineveh. And Nineveh has produced an antichrist named Sennacherib. And Sennacherib the Assyrian is about to march against Hezekiah. Jonah had been in Nineveh in about the year 800 B.C. At that time, and it had only gotten bigger, the wall was about 50 foot around the whole city. 50 feet high surrounding the entire city and wide enough for a chariot to go on. There was a 70-room palace. Had the oldest aqueducts in the world. The Assyrians were known for exceedingly violent warfare. It's said by some historians that there was a pile of skull 100 feet high at the city gates. The city wall is 50 feet high. And how high is the pile of skulls? That says something about offense and defense in their minds, doesn't it? Prior to the conquest of Judah, Sennacherib the Assyrian had defeated Babylon and impaled his opponents, forming a circle around the entire city of Babylon. He had beaten the Medes, and they were paying him off to keep him out of their land. He had beaten Egypt. All of the small kingdoms surrounding Israel, he impaled his victims and chained their kings so that he could send them ahead of him to the next city of conquest. Those of you that have watched some of the more modern portrayals of Spartan-type movies, what you saw in Xerxes is actually robbed much in history from Sennacherib. He was wicked beyond description, invented new ways of torture. He showed up outside the walls of Jerusalem, (coughs) and in 2 Kings 18... These words were spoken, but the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? This is during the time of Isaiah. Hezekiah and Isaiah are inside the city walls. There is a monster outside the city walls. A monster that has conquered the Babylonians, conquered Egypt, conquered the Medes. He has brought with him kings in chains. Every city that he's been to, he left the nobles impaled outside of the city. And now he's standing outside the kingdom of Judah, outside the city wall... And he is promising that God cannot deliver them any more than the gods of the other lands delivered those people. And at one point, Hezekiah's official said, Look, 
You're scaring the people. We're educated, man. Talk to us in our language. And the response was, no, they should hear this too because you're all going to eat your own filth and drink your own urine. Is that insulting? Can we say that that is a serious affront to the people behind the wall? It's getting late and I don't want to belabor this, but I also can't understate it for you. You've wondered what were the tipping points in world's history. You thought, oh man, World War II, we could all be speaking German. Yeah, if Winston Churchill hadn't come along and helped the Americans find their backbone, we would be speaking German. Maybe it was the Civil War. Maybe that's your issue. Maybe, maybe when you look, it was the Great War before World War II, World War I. I'd like you to consider for a second that Israel had already fallen in this time. Judah was the last remaining voice for God on the planet. If Judah falls under Hezekiah and Isaiah, if what happens is this kingdom is wiped out and absorbed into Syria, Assyria, you would have no Judaism and you would have no Christianity. If you had no Judeo-Christian influence on the world today, what would it look like? Your system of government, your system of laws, what has defined morality for more than two millennia would not exist. What's at stake here? Everything. Civilization as we know it. Who is up to that task? Second Kings 19.14 Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. What do you do when you're overwhelmed? He didn't go talk to his generals. He didn't count his tanks. He knew that whatever he had was insufficient. He had faced adversity before and he knew there was but one way to win. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone our God, over all the kingdoms of the earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. In Hezekiah's mind, it was not his reputation that was at stake. It was the Lord's. It was not his contribution to the world that was at stake. It was the Lord's. How do you treat adversity in your life? Is it a chance to uphold God's character or are you only concerned with your welfare? Has it ever occurred to you that the reason such yucky things are happening is because we have a chance to stand for God's character that has really got very little to do with you and everything to do with how God is viewed around the world? If you think yourself more compassionate than God, more politically correct than God, if you find the need to apologize for Him, then what will that tell the world about Him? Is He like a politician? He tells you whatever you want to hear to get your vote. He doesn't need anything from you. He's given you the opportunity to be obedient and the more difficult that obedience is, the more precious it is. 
Why do I want adversity? Well, number one, I don't like to be around lukewarm, backslidden Christians. I'd rather be around the lost. Number two, when it costs us something, then what we spend is so much more precious. I want to bring him the very best. Do you want to bring him a second-rate offering? I wouldn't have wanted to be in Hezekiah's shoes. It reminds me in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. Americans were concerned with not being war-weary. France fell in 1940. They actually tried to imprison the French leaders who resisted the Nazis. You gotta love that, huh? They turned on the men that defended them and put them in jail. There was serious upheaval in London. Lord Halifax was an appeaser. Neville Chamberlain was an appeaser. But the British people were beginning to listen to Winston Churchill as he exclaimed to the whole world, this evil cannot be appeased. If you turn your eye to the plight of the Jewish people, all of Europe will fall. America's response was, we need to get past our election. It's amazing how similar times can be. We... Uh, We'll be able to help at some later date. We didn't enter the war until December 7th, 1941. You know how many million Jews died? You know how much of Europe was occupied? Church, can you imagine that you're Hezekiah, you're behind the wall, and the people are saying to you, you know, if he gets inside the wall, I'll, uh, I'll come to your aid. The whole city fell on their face and spread out their problems before the Lord. And they asked the God of heaven to help them because he was their only help. This was the word that Isaiah sent to Hezekiah. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. It turns out that when you're in adversity, your deepest, most sincere, realist convictions, whatever God has infused into your soul, the iron that he's been working into you that has taken root below, that's what rises to the surface when you're in adversity. You want to find out how much you love Jesus? Let somebody put a gun to your head and we will know. And if what you are is a compromising, backsliding, lukewarm, mamby-pamby, milksop Christian, then in that moment you'll do what you always do. You'll protect your own life. But when a gun's put to your head and you've made a lifestyle out of excitement for denying yourself for Christ, looking to do the most for Him, what will come out of you is what has been put into you. Isaiah prophesied rightly to Hezekiah, but he prophesied to him what he already knew, that what was taken root below would bear fruit above. I want to tell you, you cannot wait for that great contest and say, on that day, I'll get it right. What you're doing right now is what is taking root inside of you and that is what will bear fruit on that day. 
I want adversity for us because it will train us. It will shape us. It will infuse iron into us so that when we stand in the contest that costs our life, we will bear the fruit that Christ intended for us to bear. In 2 Kings 19, 34, God said, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. So, oh, well, if God was going to do it anyway, what's the difference? I think God moved because the men were moved. What happens if Hezekiah simply says, we, we surrender, we'll sign the treaty. Look, we'll submit to inspections. I don't, whatever it takes. Just don't be angry with us. Continue to sponsor your terror. Continue to wipe Israel off the map. Continue to do your wickedness. We just don't want problems, you know. Hezekiah was offended for God. And so God came to Hezekiah's rescue. Say, why on earth did an angel kill 185,000 men? Because if he didn't, you would not have a Bible. There would not be a Jewish nation. There would not be a Savior. But it still came down to... Would those men yield or not yield? Well, what kind of men were they? Had Hezekiah loved the Lord before that day or did he have a conversion in that moment? Had Isaiah loved the Lord before that day or did he have a conversion in that moment? These men had a lifestyle of sacrifice, a lifestyle of risk, a lifestyle that laid it all on the line. And so God came through for them. What kind of man are you? I've preached to you now for about an hour and eight minutes. If an hour and eight minutes won't get it done, then it's probably not going to get done. I want to leave you with a few things that I have been pondering. We have a history in this country. And we've had some triumphant moments. But even those triumphant moments came so reluctantly. Winston Churchill once said of our country, said it in 1940, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. It's not very proud, is that? We stood by and watched aggression happening and we're doing it again. Look, when you have the ability to stop an evil and you do not stop that evil... You have failed people morally. Okay? I don't know where you are on the right to bear arms and all of those things, but let me say this. The man that stands there and watches his daughter get raped has failed her morally as well as physically. And the nation that has the ability to stop evil and does not stop evil has failed morally. But it's no surprise. We see that failure all around us every day. Churchill also said, too often the strong, silent man is silent only because he does not know what to say and is reputed strong only because he has remained silent. I want to tell you there's no such thing as a strong, silent man in times of adversity. If you are strong in Christ, then stand up for Christ. If you are strong in the faith, prove it by what you do. I don't believe in a silent majority and I certainly do not believe in silent strength. 
The day when you can protest through silence has been over for a long time, and I'm not sure it ever worked. It's time to find our voice, church. Churchill went on to say, you have enemies, good. That means you've stood up for something, sometime in your life. Who hates you because you love Jesus? Whose house are you no longer welcome to because you love Jesus? Who no longer wants you over for Thanksgiving because you love Jesus? Friends, that's an honor. That's a trophy to be sought after. And the king can restore you to him again. But you may not be able to be restored to the king if you're more interested in what they think than what he thinks. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war with all of our might, with all of our strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. This was spoken of about warfare. How much more is it true of spiritual warfare? They are dying around us every day. 63% of evangelical Protestants don't see a problem with homosexuality. Absolute truth is no longer believed by the majority of Protestant youth. Some people are estimating that in this generation there may be as few as 4% of our teenagers that are actually born again. Are you going to let that happen on your watch? Adversity is coming whether you want it or not. I think now is the time as our pastors have focused us to look at the book of Ruth. I would like to tell you that there is very much Haman's in the world right now. And what happens throughout history is when a king rises to stomp out God's people, God appoints men appointed for the time to save the people. Are you a man or woman of appointment? Are you just coasting out your Christianity? Because they're dying all around us. My family is going to Romania. We joke and we say that it is for our son and daughter-in-law's honeymoon. The truth is, our son and daughter-in-law love the Lord enough that they simply wanted to go on the mission trip. It's a mission trip that happens to include a two-day honeymoon. Our very great desire is to stand at the Black Sea to pray and see if God will grant us the privilege of one day giving our lives in the Middle East. That's our hope. That's what we're going for. We believe that the blood of the martyrs will grease the wheel of the revivals. We believe that the greater the adversity, the greater the call. We believe that if we face iron, God will put iron into us. We're raising up churches domestically to help meet that challenge. They're all rising to meet it. I'm asking you to rise to your feet now.